join me in Deuteronomy chapter 26. I'm going to read it in just a second. Uh, I want to give you a kind of a foreshadowing of, of something that's going on in the life of the church. It's a church, like big church, like, like Church of the Nazarene in, Nazar- in North Carolina, not North Carolina, in USA and Canada. In North Carolina, we're in the process of, of discerning a, a DS. We're, we're in the search process, and we're praying for that. I would ask you to kind of hold that in your prayer list, if, if you could, as, as the people who are much higher pay grade than I have are, are dealing and, and working over that. But in the broader context of where we live, in the United States and Canada, our regional director is a guy named Stan Reeder. He is a Canadian that is transplanted down. He's been named the, uh, the USA Canada director, and he is called on the church to gather in prayer. This is actually a call that, that began back in August of last year, and it has been building and moving. And, and we're just at the point where I'm going to bring the, the board and the church. And so the month of May is our target. So I'm, I'm giving you some prep time to, to talk about this. But, but the call is for a half a million people to gather in the month of May and to pray. It just so happens that when you take all of the pastors, district leaders, and staff, and all of the congregation members in North America and Canada who are part of the Nazarene Church, you get right out of half a million people. This is call, This is taken to a heart, uh, the calling in Scripture to, if my people will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven. Uh, we're going to be praying for the church, but specifically we're going to be praying for, for uh, excuse me, over three areas of the church. I just wanted to share those with you uh, this morning uh, before we get to the sermon. So you get kind of a, a pre-sermon to get you, whet your appetites, and then we're going to get into the Deuteronomy 26. Uh, number one, we are being called to pray for renewal in the church. Uh, our own district superintendent has used the language of raising the spiritual temperature. Um, you know, for God to, to send revival upon us as a people, for God to, to come upon us and renew our spirit, for God to, to light a fire underneath us. You know, fire has some, some really interesting properties that a lot of their chemical reactions don't have. Fire burns off the chaff. Fire separates things from the, the unnecessary. So you see what is, what is necessary. It consumes the non-consumable. Fire burns off things that aren't important, the, the trite, the things that would hinder growth and development, fire would, would come upon us with the, the fire of the Holy Spirit witness and, and cause us all to be renewed in our witness, to, to cause us all to have a desire to reach the lost. The second prayer that we are being called to is direction for the church. And I know that's a, that's a prayer that we have been praying here in Wake Forest for a while, that, that God would, would be that pillar of fire in the, the night before us as we wander in the wilderness, that God would be that, that pillar of cloud. And, and as we go through times of, of difficulty and, and literally time of difficulty, that's not as great for us to worship in, that God would lead us. Ultimately, it is to pray for the direction of the church, is to pray that not my will be done, but God's be done. Um, that God would would separate us from our own plans. The, the final thing that we are to pray for is for revelation to come to the church, for God to reveal his spirit upon us, not, not our politics, not our ideas, not our preferences, not our deeply held beliefs, not our opinions, not all the things that can sometimes get in the way of our testimony, but for God to reveal God's self to us, to overshadow us. In the month of May, we're going to be gathering around those three, uh, three directions, the re- renewal, direction, and revelation, to hear from heaven and to hold up our church. 
With that out of the way, just a no, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 26. I want to invite you now to hear now the word of the Lord. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of the first fruits of all of the ground, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. You shall go to the priest who is in the office at time, and you shall say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar of the Lord, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and he lived there as an alien. Few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. You shall set it down before the Lord your God and bow down before the Lord your God. And then you, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given you into your house. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There are traditionally two ways that we measure time. Firstly, you can see time as an ever-vanishing quantity. Each minute and second and hour and day slipping into the eternal void, lost forever, never to be seen again. Time as, a, as, as a, the hourglass sand slipping always and ever into the past. Time then is something to be counted, something to be saved. Time is something to spend wisely. It is something to be preserved and treasured. The second way you can measure time is, is not as, as this ever-vanishing quantity, but as, as a season. Something that always and everywhere, always and continually revolves back around itself. This is how we measure time when we talk about birthdays and anniversaries. When we remember vacations and holidays, they all return year after year, time after time. This is the time that comes when you plant in the spring and reap in the autumn. You celebrate during December. You weep during April, especially April 15th. Every year, every moment, every time that you inhabit calls to mind a previous time re-experiencing that moment to moment. 
Measured in this way, time isn't something that slips away and disappears. Something Time is, is a closed circle. It's not something that disappears into the sea of forgetfulness. It is something that comes back to you over and over again in memory. Without the modern conveniences of atomic clocks and iPhones and smartwatches, it is this second way of measuring time that dictated life for ancient Israel. In fact, all of the ancient world pre-1300, that's when the first mechanical clock was, was invented by a German. By the way, next week is time change. So, see, as preachers, you get this dead, this dead fear of having a ten o'clock service and everybody showing up at eleven o'clock. I'm trying to get my head around this having a four o'clock service and you all show up at five. Then there is something seriously wrong that my announcement is not going to fix. So, I won't say it again. Back then, before the invention of all the things that dictate and and schedule our life, they watched the moons. They remembered the seasons. And ultimately, they told stories of how their life was built and how their life was brought and and what constituted goodness and and wrongness. And that storytelling allowed them to remember the the rhythms of planting and, and harvest. But these rhythms didn't just keep time for ancient Israel. These were the very heart of their worship of God. So a quick journey through the year. The Israelite year began with the celebration of Rosh Hashanah. It actually happens on the September 25th of this year. Rosh Hashanah is the, the New Year celebration. It, it's the day when the king of the universe, God himself, sat down and finished creation. And they would celebrate that, that day by taking a, some stones and some bread and they would throw it into the water. And that, that somehow, I don't quite know how, but that, that ritual symbolized their sins being forgiven. Important thing to do before you launch into a brand new year to remember that God has forgiven your sins. The next, that theme continues with the next holiday. In early October, Yom Kippur happens, the Day of Atonement. On this day, the nation as a whole would fast. They would not eat or drink or bathe. They would abstain from conjugal relations. They would would mourn the impact of their sins. The next celebration happens in mid-October, just just the end of of Yom Kippur, is the Festival of Booths or Tabernacles. Some of you might have heard of this one before. They would would leave their homes and they would go and, and build a little tent, a little booth out in their yard, and there they would live for an entire week, camping. And they would remember, or they would, if they could, they would travel to Jerusalem and they would, they would build a booth there. And they did this to remember that there was a, a key time in their life when they lived in tents and tabernacles. When they followed after the Lord in the wilderness and wandered. There was a time when they were a people who did not have a home. The, the next big feast would come in, in Passover in April probably a celebration we know a little bit more about. Passover is ultimately when Jesus would offer himself up as the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. For ancient Israel, they, as a people, they would remember the story of of when they were captives in Egypt, bound by slavery, under oppression and toil, and God sent the angel of the Lord to, to kill the firstborn of every house, and only those who had the blood of a spotless lamb put on their lentils would would be passed over. After this, in early June, there is the Festival of Weeks. Every year, the the harvest would come in. 
And the nation would travel for the third time down or up to Jerusalem. And there they would give the first fruits, the first of the harvest to God. For those who are keeping score, this is the holiday of of Pentecost, which takes on a very different meaning in the New Testament as the Holy Spirit comes upon the early church and sets a fire upon them and sends them out to proclaim the word. The Feast of Weeks is a wonderful celebration, partly because it was during that time of year when people didn't have to mourn their sin or remember death. But it was also that time of year when everything was green and growing and all of the pollen that we are about to enter into had passed. How many of you have had a rough week this week as the pollen has popped off? I have some bad news for you. The longleaf pine has not yet come. We have about another week before everything turns yellow and we have that inch and a half of, of dust on our cars and anything that stands still outside. But all that's gone in June. In June, the world is ripe and bubbling, and there is fruit on the vine, and it is a joyous celebration. The fields are ripe for harvest. Abundance was all around, and the celebration proceeded much as our text described. They would go out into their field, and they would, they would gather the very first of the crop, whatever it would be, tomatoes or lettuce. I don't know if they had those things, but you know those things come early in the year, probably grapes and olives. And they would take that very first fruit and they would travel down to Jerusalem and there they would put it in a basket and they would hand it to the priest. And the priest would turn and and lift up that basket to the very altar of the Lord, the very place where that spotless lamb was sacrificed in Passover, that very place where the sins were forgiven and the people were delivered. The priest would lift up that offering and he would say these words. A wandering Aramean was our our ancestor. He went down into Egypt. He was a refuge on the run from famine. And not only was, was he homeless and a refuge, but the very people who took him in turned on him and started to oppress and abuse him. And then they cried out to the Lord the great King God of the universe, and God heard their call, cry and He saw their pain and oppression. God stretched out His almighty hand and delivered them. God brought them through the Red Sea. God provided them food in the wilderness and led them to the promised land, this very land that you stand, the land flowing with milk and honey. God gave them all of this. And as they tell this story, Year on year on year, as they see their story, all those centuries later, written across the stars, the full spectrum of life comes into focus. And they start to have context for their times of despair. Their times when they have called out to God in the midst of oppression. They, they have context for their heights of joy, that, that moment of celebration when, when life goes well for them. They have a story to encase their pain and sorrow. They have a story to express their exuberation of redemption. And then, only after telling this story, year after year, only after listing in great detail all that God had done for them, would they finally at long last put their offering on the altar? Recently, we've been doing offering in a 
several different ways. Necessity made, was the mother of invention for the last two years, you know, for uh, when March 2020 hit, we, we didn't quite know what to do. We had, we had set up online giving, but it was always kind of a periphery in, in the life of our church, and then all of a sudden it became the, the main way that, that we kept the, the lights on and the, the mortgage paid. And I am so grateful for all of you who, who, who quickly turned and learned new systems and began to give that way. We came back together and weren't quite, shy, quite sure about passing the plates at that time or, or what to do. And we, we've slowly kind of gotten back into normal routines. A few weeks ago, we, we started doing a, a more traditional passing of the plates. That was, to be honest, that was something somebody came and asked me. Brian Hood actually came to me and said, Pastor, you know, the offering is, is, is kind of a part of worship. And I said, you don't think? He's like, yeah, yeah we, we worship God by giving our offering. Maybe we should put that inside worship. And I was like, that's a crazy idea. Let's try it. And so we've been passing a plates around during the first two songs, trying to get it out of the way as quickly as possible. And I got to thinking this week about why I've unintentionally, without really thinking about it, been trying to maybe underplay the role of offering and I think maybe in, in my best of unintentional intentions, it kind of got it in my head somewhere that, that, that we can have a bad attitude when we give the offering. We, we can have some, some, some hesitation, some, some, some temptations in our hearts. I, I think not so much with our congregation, but for other ones, not the one you're thinking of, but for the other one. There is, that con- there is that temptation to give of an offering and to say, look what I have done for God. Look at how much I have given. Look at how much my accounts are. Look at how much our big mission budget is. We must love the lost. Look at, look at the long attendance chart we have. Look at all we do for the Lord. And I think the temptation there when we give of an offering with that spirit, is to take control, to to put our hand to the plow and to begin to, to mix metaphors, to steer the wagon of this great ship called, train called church. That temptation of control registers a lot during this season. Jesus himself had that same temptation, which is an odd thing for the son of the almighty God. Now, if anybody in the world should be have control, if anybody should have authority, if anybody should have power to do what he or she wanted to do, it certainly should be the Son of God, right? And yet, as he was on earth, Jesus himself faced that same temptation. In Luke chapter 4, the story begins this way, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. It unfolds in three very uh, familiar parts. The first temptation comes, and after those long 40 days of not eating, the devil whispers into Jesus' ears and says, I I know you're hungry, dude. It's been a long time. And I also know you have power, so so why don't you just, just solve your hunger issue and solve your power issue at one moment and make some bread out of these stones? The next temptation came. The devil says, We both know I own this place for a small fee, just a a bit of worship. I'll give it all to you. I'll save you the trouble. Oh, the devil comes the third time. I think your hot stuff 
Uh, you know, you think you're hot stuff, don't you, Jesus? But if you, would, if you would just jump off the precipice of the temple, just lie down, let all the world see who you truly are, I double-dog dare you. And each one of those temptations was for Jesus to, to take that control, which was his by right and birth, and apply it in a way that was not true. Each one was a time for Jesus to look at the world and say, hey, pay attention to me. And each time Jesus cast off those temptations by appealing to the Father. Because he knew his mission, he knew his place, he knew his time. It's, it's a small thing we do. But we're going to be trying it for a few weeks here. Before we give, we're going to take our hands off the reins. We're going to relinquish control, and we're going to remind ourselves of all that God has done for us. For we offer up gifts to God only after we have rehearsed, after we have practiced before something is supposed to happen in the future. After we have told the story and reminded ourselves of all that God has done for us and how small and insignificant our, our gifts are, it's one of the big things in Lent. You know, we do something small to, to tune our minds to something bigger. You fast something small. You give up chocolate or don't eat meat or abstain from caffeine. You take on something small, an extra devotional practice. You spend your cigarette breaks giving prayer instead of nicotine. And in all of these small things, you start to rehearse. You start to practice for the future by letting go of control, by tuning your minds to a heavenly song, by, by allowing our bodies to be shaped by acts of service and love. We, we practice by taking our hands off of the wheel and saying to Jesus, you are the one who are to lead me and guide me. You are the one who directs me. You are the one who provides for me. I am in your hands. We rehearse and we retell the story. You see, our story is very similar to the story we find in Deuteronomy 26. A wandering Aramean was all of our fathers. And say, for the grace of God, we would still be out there wandering in the desert. We all were aliens without a home, without nothing to our name until that moment when, when God found us and guided us and, and brought us. And God made us into something. And long before we knew salvation, His grace was guiding and protecting and leading us into a promised land through acts of power. And when we were treated harshly by the power of sin, when it was oppressive on our life and beat us down, God came to us in the depths of death and brought us to life and delivered us to the power of salvation so that we would know life eternal. And everything we have is a direct result of God working among us to bring about His good purpose. That's the story we tell. Each and every week when we hold that silver plate in our hand, when we give of those first fruits to God, we remember these events, we rehearse them, and we relive them again. And then celebration breaks out. 
You see, it's not just for us. God does do a a little something. There there is always a a, a good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over. That that last verse that I read gets skipped over oh so often in verse 11. Then you, after having the offering, after, after telling the story and recounting the deeds of God and then giving your gift, then you, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate. We were aliens and strangers. And now we reside in this alien and strange land. And there are strangers all around us. People who just like us don't quite fit in. God's merciful bounty spills out so that all together we may praise the name of Jesus as we bring the gifts of God to our Lord, remembering all that he has done. And you thought we were just paying the light bill. Let us pray together.